Welcome back to Menno HealthCast, a joint production of Mennonite Healthcare Fellowship and Anabaptist World. Today, I invite you to listen in as I speak with Esther Bucher, an occupational therapist who came to her profession after two service terms abroad. She has served different service terms with different Mennonite missions groups, including time in Vietnam and Indonesia. Today, we will talk about her experience as an occupational therapist here in the U.S. and as an MCC service worker in Vietnam, where she worked with victims of Agent Orange. Esther, thank you for joining me today. When we spoke briefly the other day, you told me how much you love your job and how grateful you were to find occupational therapy as a profession when you were in your 40s. Can you tell me about what an occupational therapist does? Yes, thank you. An occupational therapist focuses on adapting, modifying, or changing the daily activities of living that a person is required or wants to do. So this might be altering the activity or altering the environment or altering the skills of the person who is has uh, challenges. For example, if someone has fine motor needs, then you would help them improve their fine motor skills so that they might be able to brush their teeth easier. And so you as an OT are being a detective, kind of problem solving each step of the way and creating uh, ideas, trying trial and error, and and so forth. Then patients who have mental health challenges are also receive OT, and that is usually something where you might use positive coping strategies to work with them so that they would get involved in their occupation or their activity. Can you tell me a little bit about how the job of an occupational therapist is different from a physical therapist? The most basic difference between physical therapy and occupational therapy is that the physical therapist focuses on improving the person's ability to move their body, whereas the OT improves the person's ability to perform activities of daily living. Yeah, I'm sure if you ask a PT, they might say it differently. (laughs) It sounds like you're trying to make somebody with challenges be successful in their normal everyday activities. Yes, you are not as the therapist, the one that's going to make the changes. That person, of course, has to do it. How has your faith brought you to this career? My faith and my profession or my career as an OT really aren't separable in in my being. I believe that all people are interwoven together as human beings. And so each of us are unique and the spirit of God dwells in each of us. So that when I meet or I interface with another being, I see their whole being they're emotional, they're mental, they're physical, and their surrounding environment. I hear their story and I develop therapies or share ways that performance of daily and meaningful activities can be used 
I often reach for and draw on hope, trust, and grace, and the power that is beyond the human spirit and to the spirit of God. I completed my master's degree in training as an OT when I was 40, and I believe that God led me to other experiences prior to that in preparation for this role in this career. I grew up in a small Italian Catholic coal mining town in Pennsylvania. My father was a Mennonite minister, and he had moved there to uh, minister and start a church and I was uh, two months old when he moved there with my family. And observing him and seeing his model of loving people and sharing and caring for them on the, the whatever journey they were on really, really impacted my life. It stays with me always. Sounds like the faith of your father was foundational in taking you on this faith journey to find occupational therapy and living abroad and your ability to see the patient as a whole person and then help them integrate into their environment with the occupational therapy. Yes. What kind of persons can especially benefit from the skills of an occupational therapist? Well, an occupational therapist can work with and address the needs of any age person, many disabilities, and many different environments. And the purpose and the motivation for therapy is, of course, always client-centered and motivated from that person's felt need. So that's, you know, a little bit of uh, professional jargon, but not really. Well, I hear you saying that this occupational therapy is client-centered or patient-centered, and maybe that goes back to why you spend so much time listening to a patient's story. Exactly. Because if you understand your client or your patient, then you can help them find ways to make their environment workable for them. Yes. And also you said activities of daily living, I believe, but you also said meaningful activities. Yes. The name occupational therapy has always been a problem. And yet we as therapists keep coming back to owning it because we facilitate whatever a person's doing or finding they want to do to occupy their time and their mind. And that's a lot of things. Going to the bathroom, getting dressed, learning how to write, hold a utensil. There's just a lot of things. Some of our listeners might be familiar with occupational therapy in the hospital setting, since many of our listeners are nurses or doctors or advanced care providers. Where else can occupational therapists use their skills? This is always an amazing aspect of the field because it can be used almost anywhere. By telling you a few of the things and places I've worked over the 30 years I've been a therapist, it gives you a a view. For example, in the United States now, we have occupational therapy provided through the school systems and the federal government's plan for persons who have special needs. And if you have a learning challenge and you qualify, 
to have some assistance in school, you would get occupational therapy. And so I worked in schools for a while. I worked as a uh, person with infant intervention, babies from zero to three. And this again is another part of our government's health service. I worked in home health. So I went into people's homes as an OT. I consulted with other professionals and I contracted with uh, private businesses who had clinics. And then the last little bit, I had my own clinic in my home. So there's just lots of options. My husband teases me because he says, you last in a position about three years, and then you start looking around and you look for something more interesting. (laughs) You actually started a practice in your home. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. After working in various settings, I was looking for a change, as I described, and my own children were no longer living at home. So my husband actually was the one who said, you know, you could, I would help you start a business in our home. And I was very hesitant because of not feeling confident in being able to separate my private life and my professional life. But we created a playroom or a clinic room out of our great room. Paul, my husband, enjoyed designing and developing swings and uh, crash pads and places where you could experience and try out different therapy moves and actions to know if that might be something that could work in other people's homes. And then, of course, he did the bookkeeping and the insurance billing, which was totally not my interest at all. I actually did that for, oh, I guess it was over 10 years until I went to Vietnam. You've mentioned your husband, Paul, a couple of times. You have a, sounds like a wonderful partnership. I know when we spoke the other day, you mentioned that you had both planned on working till you were 70 or so and then retire, but your plans changed and you've already alluded to that a little bit. Can you tell me about your calling to go to Vietnam with MCC? When I was reading my emails one day in 2015, I came across an email from a friend who said, I hope you've been aware of this need uh, MCC has for a rehabilitation person in Vietnam. And I was quite surprised because I had for years after I graduated thought that I would find a place overseas or in another culture and that my husband, who also has training in international agriculture and rural development and experience would find something too. And we'd live and work in another culture again, as we had done previously. So that's how I became aware that this need was there in Vietnam. I think before I came to that awareness, I had come to peace that God wanted me where I was. And that I was meeting the needs of people where I was by realizing that there was a great need for people like me right in my own culture. What was it like to go to Vietnam 30 years after you had been there the first time? 
<laughs> when I was in Vietnam in 1970, 70 to 74, I was very young. We were both in our 20s. We were fulfilling a uh, alternate service requirement for Paul. At that time, they had these numbers. Your birth date was chosen, and then you were drafted. And his, after losing his uh, student deferment when he graduated, he was number 10. So we knew we had to find something. And we heard about this job in Vietnam and were very interested despite the war or because of the war, because many of our friends were not conscientious objectors and they were going there and it was difficult to realize that this was going on. So I guess I've digressed a bit, but it was very different. So when we landed in 2015, the hardware of war, the barbed wire, the guns, everyone in military garb, the tanks, that just wasn't there. It was peace. It was so different. It was, that was just so, so wonderful. It sounds like the first time you went to Vietnam, you felt called there because of the war as showing a solidarity with your friends. Not that you wanted to participate in the war, maintaining your conscientious objection to war, but that you still were standing with your friends who were going for a different reason. Yes, and also that we felt like living and working there, we could better understand what in the world, when we heard about this role that Paul could fill, they wanted him to be a bookkeeper for the mission. We felt like... This would certainly give us a view into the hearts and souls of people who are suffering from the actual war. It did. It allowed you to explore viewpoints from different perspectives. Yes. Give you a greater understanding. Yes. And then when you went back, it was peaceful. <laughs> you weren't greeted with barbed wire and no. guns and military uniforms. You were greeted with peace, a country of peace. Currently, Vietnam is now all one government. Both the North and the South are under one uh, People's Republic of Vietnam. MCC's office has been for years now in Hanoi which is the northern area of the country. So we went there first and spent a few months getting to know MCC and its system as it was then and learning, trying to learn language again. <laughs> You've already alluded to the fact that when you returned to Vietnam, it was a unified country. Yeah, politically, yes. I mean, there are differences in dialect, cultures, it's full of many different aspects of the way people experience life because of the geography and history. Yes, it's currently one government. How did you feel in terms of being an American in this foreign country? Well, I was always, always amazed at the graciousness and the acceptance that people had for us who had fought 
for years with one of the sides of the government. And then that side that Americans were helping, they didn't win. Uh, They didn't win the war. And now it's a communist country. But people did not view us as negative or evil. So I, I just never felt that way. It's a wonderful place for people to tour and beautiful places to visit because we had work permits that were a little different than tourist visas. We often had to get special permission to go meandering around and yet it wasn't impossible. Sometimes we just couldn't figure out why we weren't given permission and that's just the way life is. Can you tell me a little bit about the long-term impacts of the war on the people of Vietnam? Yes. One of the things that occurred was uh, some very brutal murdering and just slaughtering of people in villages because they were believed to be of the wrong political bend. And some of those villages were quite close to where we lived now when we went back. The government has created some memorial sites for people not to forget that awful approach to humanity. And the other thing that has occurred is um, toxins from Agent Orange, which was dropped across large areas by the U.S was to kill the forest and to kill the plants so that the planes and the bombs could see people. And it wasn't known until the 70s that there was a a poison in this that really was hard to get rid of. And people still in the third and fourth generation are now suffering from these uh, disabilities and these uh, these effects. So that is one thing that is a great impact. Was it that the poison altered the genetics of the persons who were affected by it, so they're passing on genetic issues to their offspring, or is it that they continue to be affected by the actual chemicals still present in the environment? Well, it's both. There's the tetragenic and the mutation possible. It's not as bad. And that's also insidious because it's hard now because it's many generations later, people don't remember who in their family might have been where when this stuff was sprayed. We met numerous people who remember, you know, they had this terrible skin disease and they didn't know what it was, you know, these older person would tell their story, for example. And the U.S. military also experienced the same poison. There's a list of uh, diseases that are identified as part of the result of the Agent Orange and, and the toxic dioxin within it. But the U.S. stopped supposedly stopped spraying in the 70s when they realized that this was causing disease. Now, of course, 
Agent Orange and the effects of Agent Orange was specifically important to your work because you were working with victims of Agent Orange. Can you tell me a little bit more about your patient population that you were working with and what kind of issues they were still having many generations after the initial uh, application of the Agent Orange? Yes, we were at a a rehabilitation center and it was a day program for people who lived at home and then this would allow their family to go to work or to even do some work if they could come to the center. It was people from, I guess the youngest that came was three and the oldest maybe was 40. And skin conditions, diabetes, cancers, various cancers, people with Down syndrome, Parkinson's disease, cerebral palsy of many types, nervous conditions. Often it wasn't clear. The child was born with something like an arm or a leg that was uh, that had malfunction or they had very low tone, like cerebral palsy often exhibits itself. It was varied. And was the rehabilitation program that you were working at, was it already established or did you establish it? It had just opened and they built this building in Vietnam. There's a non-government organization throughout the country called the Vietnam Association for Victims of Agent Orange. They have volunteer organizations everywhere and they organize, they collect monies and, you know, it's very acknowledged and recognized. So they were the starters of this particular center and MCC gave some funds after they had, you know, built the building not MCC didn't build the building, but MCC gave some assistance And one of the assistants that they said they would provide is a volunteer rehab person. It was a far cry from a rehab center in our assessment. And yet, because they were very open to learning, (laughs) I felt like, oh, I'm supposed to be here, I think. It was difficult because the idea of rehabilitation is different in each culture. And here the idea was, you know, to give these people money and give them milk, give them candy, give them sweets. So the idea of, say, looking at what their skills were already and then encouraging that and training further for them to be able to do things was to be developed. (laughs) It sounds like you had to change the cultural expectations a bit and help people understand that there could actually be rehabilitation in some of your clients. Exactly. Anyone who works overseas as a health person recognizes that, I think, to some extent. You know, when you take an assignment and go somewhere, you never know what really you're going to end up doing. And yet I was pretty persistent in the idea that I did have some 
some training and some knowledge about people's spirits. And I wanted them to be able to experience that. So I was a bit more persistent maybe than uh, MCC would have thought I would be. <laughs> Do you have a particular patient encounter or experience that was particularly meaningful to you? Well, there are many, of course. I mean, I can tell one story. One little boy who came, his name was Bao Ang, and he was brought by his grandparents, his uh, paternal grandparents, and his mother had left him, and they were raising him, and he was about three, I guess, when he first came, and he had acetoid cerebral palsy. They didn't leave him at the center because he was totally dependent on being helped by someone. But they stayed for an hour or two and were able to learn skills and ideas of positioning. And he was very much aware of the world around him, but he couldn't speak and he couldn't use his muscles, his hands because of his cerebral palsy. But what was so special was the first day they came, they wanted to know if they could find a place to give him to someone because they were overwhelmed with his care. At the center, the director, who was not a medical person, but a very encouraging person, he said, no, you know, we don't have that kind of option here. But as Bao An began to explore and his grandparents realized that inside of him, there was quite a lot of potential. It was just really heartwarming to see the change. And, and that, I, that I saw repeatedly by people again and again. And that's, <laughs> yeah. That's just he, an amazing thing to hold in your heart. Yes, it is. What are some of your accomplishments that you will also hold in your heart as you reflect on your three-year term in Vietnam? Well, I don't really think about my accomplishments as much as what I was able to share with others. And there are a few significant things. One, when it took me a few years to put pieces together from an earlier therapy-related project that MCC did, Back in the 90s, they had a, a younger OT come from Canada, and she worked on a uh, booklet with a Vietnamese person about occupational therapy activities and uh, how to understand people and disabilities. And then they produced this in Vietnamese. It was like a, a small booklet. And when I was packing up my house, we sold our house and stored things uh, back in 2015, I came across a copy of this book that had been sent to me from, uh, from MCC Vietnam in the day when it was created, because I was trying at that time to find out if there was any need for my work in Vietnam. And so I asked the staff at MCC Hanoi about this project and where it went, but no one knew anything about it. 
So uh, in the end, uh, we were able to get a drive from the computer, of course, and uh, print out numerous copies in Vietnam and share them with people where we went. And so that felt to me like a gift that we were able to share in many places and in many ways. Another thing that was heartwarming was finally after the second, after the first year and a half, we were able to get us an interpreter or a translator. I felt continually like when I was trying to train the staff, there were young staff who wanted to learn to understand OT and what you could do. And, and so I wanted to do trainings and they wanted to participate, but it was very difficult you know, you're dealing with a profession and a career to try to explain this. I had a fairly decent Vietnamese shopping skill, (laughs) marketing skill in Vietnamese language, but otherwise I felt frustrated. So that was positive. The other thing, the last year we were there, we were able to develop a program of simple home therapy for families that couldn't come to the center for various reasons. And then I was able to train them, the staff, even though they weren't therapists, what to do. And then they would bring back the little clips on their cell phones, the videos, and show me. And then I would give them feedback because there was no way that I could go visit all the homes. So that was a a special thing. And so even after my role was finished, I continued doing that up until this past March by internet, giving them feedback, observing their work. And then the other thing, because of the National Victim of Agent Orange organization throughout the country, they had a national conference in Hanoi when they brought people from all over the country who were caregivers, somebody from each province. And they invited me to come. I felt very honored because, you know, I was just a caregiver for a moment in time. I mean, these parents take care of these children from day one. I was invited, and so I spoke at this conference along with many other people. That was special. And then the main TV station in the country sent a filmmaker down to central Vietnam, where we lived and where the center was, and they followed us for about five days to our work and filmed us, and they made this lovely film in Vietnamese and showed it on the main TV station one one night. I felt like that message that these people, their spirit and their soul is just so much more than what you can see. And so I felt like that message was shared throughout the country. Well, Esther, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been a great pleasure. I'm going to take away the message of hope that yes, it, that's what it felt to me like you especially wanted to give in Vietnam. So that's my takeaway from today more than anything else. Oh, thank you. 
And to our listeners, thank you for joining in on this conversation with Esther Bucher, who's an occupational therapist recently returned from serving in Vietnam with MCC. Musical credits for our podcast go to Paul Schlitz. Editing credits go to Eugene Stevanis. Please join us again next time for our next podcast of Meadow HealthCast.